You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 5, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello and welcome. I am looking forward to talking to you today about navigating negative emotions. This is a topic that I feel is critically important, both for our ability to work with others who are experiencing negative emotion and for improving our ability to recognize our own negative emotions, as well as how we tend to express them or not express them, as the case may be. When I say negative emotion, I'm speaking of an emotion that is uncomfortable, one that we do not want to experience. Some common examples are grief, fear, anxiety, anger, envy, shame, depression, insecurity, the list goes on. If one considers the spectrum of human emotion, from rage or hatred all the way up to ecstatic happiness, it makes sense, like any other continuum, for there to be emotions at every point in between those two extremes. The hard part is that in society, we only like to see expression of the positive end of that spectrum, or maybe neutral. But our expression of the negative side of that spectrum is often met with rejection or thinly veiled requests that we please change our attitude. Let's take grief, for example. Despite the phrase that everyone grieves differently, and despite that being generally accepted It's impressive how frequently we don't actually let that be true. So if we have a friend or a family member who are grieving, or this may be most apparent if you yourself have had a period of grief or grieving, you may have heard that idea that everyone grieves differently and that it's okay and that everyone processes grief differently. But you may find that when you express grief in the manner that feels authentic to you, the feedback you get is that it's not okay and that you need to change however you're grieving, that you need to stop being angry in your grief, or you need to cry more, or you need to cry less, or you need to get over it, or you need to pull yourself together, or you need to compartmentalize or find a way to separate your personal life and your work life. And the list goes on and on. We have this incredibly rich language full of phrases telling other people how to stop doing or feeling what they're doing or feeling. And in our world, in the veterinary world or the the world of animals, we see this quite a bit when somebody experiences the death of an animal. When a dog dies, you do tend to get sympathy, but that sympathy often lasts for maybe a week, maybe two weeks, four weeks if people around you are generous, but it's not treated the same way that a death of a person is treated. And yes, humans and dogs are different, but grief isn't. The process of grief takes as long as it takes, and that isn't something that can be confined to a time period preordained by society. So even non-dog people will often give you grace with a dog. Cats can be harder. A lot of non-animal people will give you maybe a day or two to get over the death of a cat. In high school, I lost my cat Lucky. I know, I know. But I lost my cat Lucky to a fan belt accident, very consistent with his name. 
And I got to school and a friend of mine who I considered an animal lover noticed that I was looking upset. Lucky had died that morning. I was upset. I had gone to school because I had to go to school, but I was not pleased to be there. And so this friend who I fully expected to offer me sympathy and a shoulder to cry on said, well, it's just a cat. I was so flabbergasted and hurt and surprised. I instantly clammed up, of course, and didn't share with anybody else what had been going on in my life and didn't mention it again, maintained a stoic facade at school, but that was a huge blow. And one of the first times that I realized that all grief is not equal in the eyes of society, and if your grief isn't the type of grief that is okay, you don't get the support that you need. Now consider that you're grieving a species that isn't even considered a pet by most standards. Say you're grieving a favorite chicken. Say you're grieving a pig or a goat or any of the other livestock animals. Horse people have a little bit more leeway because there are plenty of horse stories that capture the public imagination and the public's hearts. But still, that's a momentary grief, and then you're done. It's not something they expect to hear about four months later or five months later. Besides, who cries over a chicken, right? But the thing is, we do cry over our chickens and our cows. We cry over our hedgehogs and our rats. We cry over all of these warm creatures who have made our lives better. And cold creatures. I didn't mean to leave the reptiles out. But we don't often get to express our grief in a way that we can feel will be acknowledged. No one's going to understand that you might legitimately be going through a grief process. They'll say, oh, you're sad. Yeah, death is sad. But they will not acknowledge that the death of this particular creature, this particular animal, is worth the emotion that you are showing. And that kind of response cuts so deeply, so, so deeply. It devalues your grief. It devalues your pain. And that's just one of our list of common negative emotions. Think about pain, sorrow, guilt, all of these emotions that we just don't express, or we don't express outwardly to people who aren't in our very small, intimate circle of trust. If you're feeling guilty about something, uh, that's a very difficult emotion to share. And this is largely because we aren't very forgiving of negative emotions. The range of emotions you are permitted by society to express varies considerably based on your age, gender, race, location or setting, your relative wealth, occupation or status, and the relationship within which the emotion is being expressed. Let's take a look at some of these factors. Age. We certainly don't expect toddlers to have any kind of emotional regulation, and we absolutely, if not appreciate, at least understand that tantrums are normal, that volatile expressions of mostly anger is how it appears, but usually it's frustration or disorientation. Anyway, toddlers, they can have all the emotions they want and they're normal. They're fine. Teenagers are another age category where some leniency is given. Even if we don't like the emotions that a teenager is expressing, there's an acknowledgement that it's normal. We expect teenagers to be volatile. But as we get older, the range of emotion that we're allowed to express gets narrower and narrower until we get to our 70s or 80s, perhaps. 
and you're allowed to be the cranky old man on the corner. You're allowed to be the, the woman with no filter who gets to comment on all the young people's lives. So that's age. Gender should be obvious. We don't like to see fear in our men. Women have a little bit less license to be angry. Women can be insecure, but men really shouldn't be. Lots of double standards going on with all of these categories, not just gender. It's also a matter of avoiding stereotypes. This comes into play in particular with race or cultural heritage, where expression of certain negative emotions will have you pigeonholed at best or will put your safety in jeopardy at worst. We've all seen wealth make a difference in how you're able to act. A wealthier person can get away with a larger amount of obnoxious behavior or anger than a person who doesn't have that status marker. And the list goes on. And for every negative emotion, there are a hundred places where it's not okay to express it. Even when an emotion is allowed, we don't always do a good job of handling it, in part because we have a much more limited phrasebook to work from, and most of those phrases feel trite or even dismissive. It's not your fault. There's nothing to be afraid of. Just take a deep breath and calm down. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a very good one. I challenge anyone whose partner has asked them to please calm down, to say that it worked, that this indeed did calm you down. I know that it has never worked for me, but back to our examples. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be worried about. There's a silver lining to every cloud. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. God works in mysterious ways. God has a plan. Few of these phrases actually land well and make a difference. We have a hard enough time sitting with our own negative emotions that deliberately sitting with someone else's negative emotions is not easily done or done well, despite good intentions. And I think we can all agree that most of the time these phrases are used with good intentions. But until you've had personal experience with the specific type of negative emotion that your friend or family member is dealing with, it can be hard to know what is useful to hear. And this is if you're trying to be helpful or supportive. More often than not, a person's response when you share a negative emotion is to get rid of it as quickly as possible, either by trying to quickly cheer you up or calm you down if you're expressing something like anxiety, depression, sadness, or grief, or to tell you that your emotion is inappropriate or socially unacceptable or even ridiculous. Fear and shame are often ridiculed, which can be very harmful for the person experiencing those emotions. All of these responses teach us that it is not safe to open up. You know that phrase, if you don't have something nice to say, better not say anything at all? There's sort of a corollary here. If you don't have something positive to say, don't say anything at all. I want to share with you one of my favorite poems by Robert Browning Hamilton. I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. One more time. I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I just love that poem. It's just, I love it. I feel we learn a great deal about ourselves and about others from negative emotions. And one of the biggest downsides of not opening up about our negative emotions 
is that we lose that opportunity to learn. We also lose the opportunity to discover how to navigate our negative emotions, how to handle grief and envy, fear and shame, and how to recognize them in our own body and distinguish them one from the other. It may seem odd to place a high priority on being able to distinguish emotions from each other, kind of like distinguishing between the left canine and the right canine when you're evaluating the the bite mark on your finger. But if you think about it, if our primary reactions to feeling negative emotions is either to internalize those negative emotions or stuff them back down, or to channel them into the most socially acceptable way of expressing them, um, for many, this is often anger. We don't spend time feeling what the actual emotions are. We don't spend time trying to decide if this is shame or guilt. They're close relatives, but very different overall in how, how they ultimately make us feel and how we react to ourselves in shame versus being in guilt. How do we know if it's more than one emotion or if it's three or four or five? If we don't spend time existing with those negative emotions, we don't have the the same information that we do about an equivalent positive emotion. Think about falling in love. Think about how much time you spend thinking about your sensations of being in love. Think about all the ways that we describe love, all the different kinds of love that we talk about. There's love for friends, for family, for mothers, for fathers, for children, for cousins, for first love, for second love, for long-term love. There are as many types of love as there are authors and screenwrites out there. But do we talk about the same gradations of sorrow or guilt or shame or any of these other negative emotions that we've been discussing? We don't. And we don't have as many of those fine distinctions with negative emotions because we don't sit in them long enough to parse out some of the fine details. And to be clear, I'm not advocating that you spend time brooding over the emotions of the day that have made you feel bad. What I am suggesting is that when a negative emotion comes up, give it a little bit of time at that moment when it appears to think about what you're feeling. What is your body feeling? What are you thinking about? What just happened? And is this a familiar sensation or is it something less common? Knowing your negative emotions to the same degree as your positive emotions gives you a lot of information to work with and gives you a lot of feedback on your life, on where you're working, who you're spending your time with, how you're spending your hours. And that information can guide you in decisions that will affect your well-being. So understanding and knowing your negative emotions intimately can be of great benefit. One of the first things that you'll need to do when you begin to evaluate yourself for negative emotions is to recognize when you're using one emotion to mask another. Let's take anger as an example. Anger as a substitute for fear or guilt or insecurity, worry, any of these other negative emotions becomes a shield and a defensive mechanism. If you're angry, people will not probe at your feelings. People won't approach you. They're not going to engage you. If you're angry, they tend to stay away or they tend to react with anger, either of which is a predictable response. And predictability, especially when you're feeling vulnerable, can be important. Think about this this anger situation as it applies to our clients. 
anger sometimes crops up in exam rooms when you have a misunderstanding about past care or about instructions for a medication that have made a big difference in a pet's life or a miscommunication about what type of blood work was required and how much that's going to cost. Some of these factors elicit anger, and while we don't appreciate it, we can certainly understand where they're coming from. But where does anger come from when you have an injured pet in front of you and you're discussing treatment options? And anger just comes up out of nowhere, and you're suddenly on the defensive, and you're really not sure how you got there. Those are the times to consider what the owner might be masking. Maybe the owner is terrified for the health of their pet. Maybe they're feeling guilty because the dog slipped their leash and they've been telling themselves for a week that they're going to get a new one. Or maybe they're feeling frustrated at a family member of theirs because they're having to take over responsibility for a task that they weren't supposed to have to do. So there are a number of emotions that a client may be overriding with anger because anger is the more acceptable emotion for them to be able to express. They don't want to show you their fear. They don't want to show you their guilt or their pain. So they express anger, particularly when that anger includes the phrase, you're only in it for the money or some variation thereof. Our own negative emotions are engaged. And those negative emotions may be varied. Some of us may feel attacked or dispirited or hurt. Some of us may truly be angry. Some of us may feel despair if it's been a particularly bad week. But whatever combination of negative emotions we feel, our response is most likely going to be crisp and stiff professionalism. And that's our mask. That's our professional mask that keeps us safe and allows us to bypass discussion of the negative emotions that we're actually feeling. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes anger does come out or we do lose our cool and we express ourselves in a manner that the objective observer would not consider professional. And so when these two two masks collide, shall we say, we end up with a situation in which neither party is expressing themselves honestly, hearing the other person honestly, and it's just a no-win situation. Both parties leave unsatisfied. The goal, of course, is to minimize escalation to the point where this is the result, but that's not always possible and it's not always on us. So the best that we can do is to listen to ourselves and recognize what our authentic emotions are. And if we think we understand or have a guess at what the authentic emotions of the other party are, sometimes talking about those emotions that we suspect or bringing them into the room can diffuse the situation. For instance, you have a pet, say a cat, who's got an enormous abscess, and they always you know, look worse than they are, and they smell horrible, and the cat's often sick. So for many clients, it feels like a pretty big emergency. And medically, it is an emergency, but it's one of those emergencies that we can address and manage very well. But if we have an owner who's angry about having to wait for two hours to get into a room, or the price has just got them over the top... What we may be hearing is not only frustration at these administrative factors, but truly a deep fear for the safety and well-being of their pet. 
And while we're still hearing the anger, if maybe we can also hear the fear and the love that that reflects for their animal, we might be able to cut the owner a little bit more slack, or at the very least not take their attack so personally. Sometimes you can adjust your conversation in a way that offers reassurance or comfort, and you will find the anger dissipating. And that's the very best outcome that you can hope for. In today's handout, you will be asked to explore how you experience and how you express negative emotion in your own life. As always, thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to next time. This has been a mental health moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can download the handout mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have the handouts delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions, or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Tune in next week for a discussion entitled, When Will It Be Okay? Until then, take care.